Well, if you have your Bibles, I do ask that you would turn to Matthew chapter 7. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. We are making our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we began looking at and seeing instances where Jesus is bringing uh, illustrations to a statement that he made where he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he came to make his people as citizens of his kingdom uh, to, to live as ones who truly adore him, ones who truly worship him, don't just do so in religious action or in word. And so in Matthew chapter 5, he is now starting to explain to his audience what this really means that he has come to fulfill the law and what it means for us. Last week we saw how he tied anger and murder together. And this week we're going to see how he ties lust and adultery together as he pursues righteousness in his people. So Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Let me pray just one more moment. This is, a, this is a weighty text. All texts are weighty, but this is one that perhaps we might feel acutely the impact all the more. So let me pray. Lord, as we open your word, Lord, we pray you would help us to, mit, to submit ourselves under its authority and to look to Christ and live. We pray this in his name. Amen. So as we prepare to dive into this text, I actually want to begin by discussing with you something that I perceive to be a threat to ourselves, to our nation, to Western civilization, to our very existence. And this is a threat that many of you perhaps are not even aware of. That threat is gender reveal parties. Let me say that again. That threat that we face as a people is gender reveal parties. If you're not familiar with what a gender reveal party is, it's a gathering or a, a, a celebration where an expecting couple creatively reveals what has been revealed to them as the gender of their baby. So maybe there will be cupcakes there that they'll bite into and they'll have pink for a girl or blue for a boy. Or they'll hit a, hit a pinata or something and an outburst pink or blue confetti and everyone celebrates that a little, burl, little girl or a little boy is on the way. But there are ways that gender reveal parties are wreaking havoc upon America and even across the world. And that is when gender reveal parties get out of hand. Listen to some of these stories. In October of 2019, a couple in Iowa was having a gender reveal party when the materials that they had put together that were going to explode in pink or blue powder those materials actually did explode, but they exploded with a force that was far greater than what was intended, wreaking destruction upon the party. The authorities, after the fact, looked at the materials and realized that the couple, unknowingly, had basically built a pipe bomb that exploded. In April of 2018, a car in Australia, it's not just limited to the U.S., although we do seem to do things in an exponentially foolish manner sometimes, but a couple in Australia was having a gender reveal party, and 
A, a car caught fire as the driver was attempting to rev up the engine and spin out the car so that blue smoke would shoot out of the exhaust of that car and reveal that a baby boy was on the way. Most recently, two most impactful disasters that I read about were in April of 2017, a man in Arizona shot a rifle at a target that was filled with powder and tannerite, a highly explosive material. And this small explosion sparked a wildfire that eventually spread to the Coronado National Forest and consumed some 45,000 acres, resulting in $8 million worth of damage and needing 800 firefighters to put it out. And maybe you've heard of this one. This past Labor Day weekend, a pyrotechnic device at a gender reveal party ignited and started the El Dorado Fire in California, a fire that is still burning in Southern California today. Gender reveal parties, man, they're far more dangerous than you realize. Now, the truth is we laugh or we shake our heads at these stories. But did you know that there's a way that many of us act just as foolishly? You see, what we might think is fun and games is actually destructive. It can actually even be life-threatening. But don't take my word for it. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Jesus writes, or Jesus says, Matthew writes, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What I'm going to argue for you from this text is that in matters of righteousness and sexuality, inaction is not enough. We must wage war against lust in our hearts. Let me repeat that again. When it comes to our righteousness and, and, and sexuality, inaction is not enough. We must wage war against lust in our hearts. Now, when we speak of lust, these are thoughts that are, thoughts that are unfulfilling sexual, driv sexually driven desires of the mind. And this might be an odd subject to consider. But in seeing this, we recognize that Jesus did not state these things by accident. Matthew did not record them by accident. And so we must believe that there is some importance for us today, as I believe there's uh, a, a, an incredible amount of importance to it. But also, we will also see in this, as Jesus places these instructions upon his audience and upon us, we'll learn a little more about what it means to actually follow Jesus, what the path of taking up your cross and following him actually looks like and in this as we walk through verses 27 to 30 we're going to see as jesus applies the law of god to our hearts we're actually going to see the limited reach of the law as we understand it the ugly lie of lust as we enjoy it and the action that staves off destruction we're going to see the limited reach of the law as we understand it the ugly lie of lust as we enjoy it and the action that staves off destruction. So look at how Jesus, first the limited reach of the law, look at how Jesus quotes from the Old Testament law 
in verse 27. He's particularly quoting from Exodus 20, verse 14, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. And in verse 27, he says, You have heard that it's said, You shall not commit adultery. So let's pause right there. So the Old Testament law, the sixth of the, tenth com- of the Ten Commandments, although there's many much more expansiveness to the law than just the Ten Commandments, but of the Ten Commandments, the sixth is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But what Jesus is about to reveal is that though obeying the law is good, trusting the lawgiver is an altogether different matter. And that is hard when it comes to matters of sex, when it comes to matters of our thoughts and our relationships. It is quite difficult, isn't it? When you get into that world, it can seem that God is either some kind of cosmic killjoy, or it's just preposterous to think that God would even speak to such sensitive issues. Is that right? Don't you think when you start to think of these kinds of things, these kind of actions, these kinds of thoughts in our minds, these kind of desires in our hearts, most commonly we might think today that this is something that God is just outdated and we would not want to hear him speak to this, just as you probably wouldn't have this kind of conversation with a great-grandparent. Or we would think that what he is going to say is oppressive, is harsh, and is out of touch with the freedoms and liberation that we enjoy today. But let me ask you something. I think that Jesus speaks to this in a manner that is directly penetrating to hearts, whether it was back in his day or whether it is our day as well. Have you ever bitten bitten into an apple or begun to peel an orange, only to get under under the skin and see that the fruit on the inside is rotted out? This is what Jesus is speaking against, and this is what Jesus is confronting when it comes to the souls of those who would profess to follow him. He does not want the outer skin to look good while the core is rotting about. And this is really what the whole Sermon on the Mount is addressing. But our religiosity as we understand it today is one that we make the external look good while the internal is perhaps crumbling. As long as we can pass the eye test of those around us, we don't have to pass the heart test of the God who created us. But this is what Jesus addresses. That's why he previously said, you know, it says not to murder, but if you're angry with your brother, you're committing murder. And this is why he tells us here in verse 27, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But he says in verse 28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So as he moves past the external and directly to the internal, here's how this marks Christianity out from different religions, different worldviews, and here's why it's good that he marks these out. Listen with me if perhaps this is a new concept to you, or you're learning a little more about Christianity, or you're trying to understand what it is Christians believe, or what it is Jesus taught, or what the Bible says. Here's why it is good that Jesus gets to the heart and doesn't just stop at the external. What Jesus is doing is that instead of thinking in our COVID day and age, Like nowadays, if you were to go to a restaurant, you would have to have your temperature taken and and, uh, maybe answer a question or two if you've shown any symptoms. Pretty simply, you could answer that. But instead of just answering the external questions or answering those questions and then getting the pass and saying, okay, you look healthy enough. In Christianity, God stands before us and like a doctor who is reading an MRI or CAT scan of the patient who otherwise on the outside looks healthy, he is able to see deep down what that, what that MRI or CAT scan says, and he says, okay, you might have thought yourself to be healthy, but we have a problem here that we need to address. 
And what we're going to see here is that as other religions, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see this, as other religions try to perhaps give us beauty or skincare products that give us a more pleasing appearance, Jesus does heart surgery to make you a different person. And that's what he's doing for us here. In fact, if you are learning more about Jesus and what he teaches and what he's really about, I encourage you later today, late this afternoon or this evening before going to bed, to take a copy of the Bible and read Matthew 5-7, through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It takes about 10 minutes to read through. And read through it carefully, read through it deliberatively, read through it slowly, and allow Jesus to reorient your understanding of the world in which you live and even your understanding of yourself and your relationship to God. If you don't have a Bible, they're available back here on the table. We'd love to give one to you. Feel free to take it. Don't even ask. Just take it and look at it. Read Matthew 5 through 7. Now, you might hear this. You might think all of this is Jesus is exposing the limits of the law when he says don't commit adultery. Or or, or he says, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I say if you lust, you're already committing it in your heart. And you might think, okay, that plus anger and murder last week Is Jesus saying that anger and murder are no different than lust and adultery? Or excuse me, that anger and lust are no different than murder and adultery? Is he really flattening out things? Well, no. One commentator that I read, he he helped to illustrate this point. Jesus is not flattening out murder and adultery with other sins. Rather, he's pushing against the human tendency to focus on external actions and make godliness a matter of appropriate behavior regardless of the heart's intent. And to use Jesus' words, the broad and easy way is the way of external religion, but not that of whole person righteousness. So as we consider the limits of the law, the, the limits of the law which tell us do not commit adultery, let me ask you, where does your righteousness or your sense of righteousness lie? You do right, you recycle, you support the right social justice causes, You have been faithful to your spouse. You don't sexually harass others or say inappropriate things to co-workers or to loved ones. Well, good. You've passed the initial exam. But now let's go with Jesus and get the deeper scan of the heart. Let's go with Jesus to get the MRI. We've considered the limits of the law. Now let's look at the ugly lie of lust. The ugly lie of lust. What Jesus shows us here in verse 28, when he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is showing us that the ugly reality of lust or of fantasy and improper thoughts uh, sexually towards others is that these are not like silly string that you play with and enjoy, but they are like a blowtorch that burns everything it touches. So, rhetorically, Stop and ponder what is going on in your heart. What's going on in your heart with that coworker who has caught your eye? What's going on in your heart with that old friend from college who perhaps you reconnected with over social media? What's going on in your heart when it comes to the thoughts or behaviors that you excuse in your own life because perhaps health issues of your own or of your spouse or relational strife in your marriage, or continued, continued singleness that you experience has not led you, any of these have inhibited you to enjoying the sexual enjoyment that you imagined in life. 
what's going on in your heart when you desire emotional connection with someone that is more vibrant and rich than that emotional connection that you have with your spouse. See, Jesus is unloading profound spiritual truth as he ties sexual activity and desire to something that gets to the very heart, to the very essence of human well-being and health. And this is something that culturally we get right in some ways, but other ways we get terribly wrong. We wrongly understand sexuality and human life as, as we over-sexualize our media, our education, our dress, our talk, even our understanding of what it means to be fully alive. Unguarded sexual expression is something that is cheered on in our day and age. And yet we contrast this by rightly placing utmost importance on things like consent and on protecting against sexual harassment or sexual abuse. And you see the inconsistency here. In one sense, it is brought down to the lowest common denominator for all to enjoy. In another sense, it is rightly guarded and elevated as something that is extremely powerful and can wreak great harm. We we, culturally, we sensationalize lighting matches, but then we are disgusted when the house catches on fire. How many times, maybe even this week, have we heard about, heard stories of sexual discretions that burned down and destroyed lives, marriages, children, or anything else? Where were those fires initially lit? In the heart. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, shifting gears. Let me pause here and step back a little bit. You know another reason this statement by Jesus would have been staggering to his audience as they heard it? Not just because he's telling them that you're, you're being lawbreakers when you think you're being law keepers. But it is another example of Jesus reorienting our understanding or or, or his original audience's understanding of relationships between men and women. As Jesus empowered and lifted up women and how they were viewed and understood by society and even by those who profess to be worshipers of God. You see, historically, at this time, as Jesus spoke, it was generally believed that a married man could have sexual escapades or adventures with other women as long as these were, uh, did not involve another man's wife. Essentially, a man could have an inappropriate relationship with a slave or a Gentile non-Jewish woman. The main problem, as the, it was seen in that day, was that he not commit adultery involving another man's wife. That was concern. Don't cause offense to the other man but with no regard for the overlooked, uncared for other participant in the encounter. But Jesus steps in and says, no, 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 no. You have totally misunderstood and you have totally misapplied the law of God. It's the law of God is not meant to be a license towards your indiscretion. As long as you don't do it this way, everything else is permissible. No, it's meant to be the law of God is meant as a means of our own spiritual liberation as we listen to God and get invited into another world, another kingdom that is ruled over by King Jesus. So how do we live as citizens of King Jesus, seeking true righteousness that isn't just in the actions of our bodies, but is in the meditations of our mind and the contemplations of our hearts? How do we do this? You hear Jesus say this, and then you you ask him, okay, Jesus, what do you mean? How do I uphold such convictions? Well, he calls us to metaphorically make war on our sins. 
Look at verses 29 and 30 and see the actions that stave off destruction. Jesus says, okay, your heart, you're committing adultery if you look lustfully at another person. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now I should state, verses 29 and 30, Jesus is using hyperbole to emphasize the point that he wants to make regarding lust and adultery. The point he's making is that there is something around you that causes you to sin. Deal drastically with it. Do not flirt with it. Do not nibble with it. Don't make room for it. The early church father Origen famously or infamously read this text and then he rolled over naked over sharp briars. But when this failed to cure him of lust, he castrated himself. After that, he concluded painfully that he had perhaps misinterpreted this text. Sadly, painfully, Origen learned that his heart could still lust even when he was blind and without hands. So what is the solution? Jesus is telling us to take whatever steps are necessary to snuff out the sin of lust. You need to get rid of your smartphone that enables consumption of pornography. It would be better to deal with inconvenience in this life than to have all the technology that you need as you enter into hell. You need to have a conversation with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. The physical intimacy has gone to a place that is inappropriate. Yes, it's nottingly approved of by so many, but your own heart feels the searing cost of sexual experience, enjoying the pleasures of marriage apart from the security and commitments of marriage. How do you need to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand so as to not give room to the temptations of the flesh? Now we must address, or we must seek to understand Jesus' words about judgment and hell here. He says in verses 29 and 30, it's better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And then in the last part of verse 30, it's better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Well, what Jesus is referencing here was a real physical place. A real physical place known as Gehenna. This was a place south of Jerusalem. And it was polluted with filth. It was polluted with the carcasses of animals and even dead bodies of criminals. And in order to keep large swarms of pests away, constant fires would be kept burning in this place at all times. And this is a place that Jesus repeatedly referenced as he taught. It's referenced throughout the book of Matthew. Matthew 5, 22, 29, 30, 10, 28, 18, 9, 23, uh, 15, 33. All these places Jesus references it. And Jesus is doing this to warn those who would listen to him of the stark dangers of a false, of an empty, of a hollow religiosity that perhaps worships God in word and in action, but not in heart. Jesus does not play games when it comes to following him in obedience. You need to have a conversation with a brother or sister in the faith and ask for them to pray for and to walk alongside of you as you pursue purity of heart. See, what Jesus shows us here 
is that following Jesus is not a casual stroll through a park. It is a call to take up our cross and follow him. And throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us that obedience to him is hard, yet it is life-giving. And this life is found in the one who is speaking to us and calling us to life in him. In fact, Jen Wilkin, a a well-known Bible teacher, she writes, as believers, our obedience to the law is not a way to earn favor, but it is a joyful response to the grace that we have received. This law that we read represents God's character, And having right motivated actions demonstrates that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus lays it out before us, huh? When I was talking about sermon texts that we were going to preach through and kind of dividing them up with Neil, and I gave him anger and murder, he said, oh, wow, that's a hard one. I said, well, do you want the next one? Jesus' words confront us, do they not? Now, if you're like me, you hear his words here, and you're left with one of two conclusions. The first conclusion is one of saying, see, this proves it. He is a killjoy. He is a brutal, harsh taskmaster who makes demands upon myself, makes demands upon others that are far too unreasonable, that are far too uh, 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 impossible to follow. And this proves that he and I are simply incompatible. You Christians go do your thing, but it's not for me. That's one possible conclusion. The other possible conclusion is that you read this and you say, Jesus, I believe the words that you have said, but I believe the words that you have said, and, and, and I have a hard time believing I have any way of measuring up to them. It's as if you're telling me, Jesus, to come and swim in the waters of obedience to you and live, but these waters are a raging ocean that you are asking me to swim across. I cannot make it. Both of these conclusions would be right if not for one thing. Jesus tells us it is better for you to lose your eye or lose lose your hand than for your whole body to go to hell. Now we, we covered that he is talking about this in hyperbole. He is not talking about this seriously, but he's using this as an example by which the seriousness we pursue obedience to him. But you know what he did do seriously? Remember hell as he referenced it, this place of Gehenna where these continual fires of destruction burned outside of Jerusalem. Well, Jesus himself went and bore the hell that us and our lust and our adultery of our hearts deserved as he went outside of Jerusalem and endured the cross, not for any sins that he had committed, but for your sins and for mine. So if you hear these words and adultery that you have committed, whether in action or in heart, rears its ugly head and tells you that you do not measure up and you deserve the judgment of Christ, the judgment of God, then yes, you do. But we all do, and we all have received the grace of God in Christ, bearing that judgment in our place. Christ 
calls us towards honesty with ourselves and honesty towards understanding not just the the destructive, vile nature of the sins of our hearts when it comes to adultery and lust, but honesty and understanding the glorious nature of redemption that is found in Him and in Him alone. He went and endured that destruction of the body in the hell of the cross outside of Jerusalem in order that we might hear His words and live. So hear these words and be sobered by them. But be sobered by them in order to be pressed in further towards clinging to Christ who has endured the penalty that rested upon you. And be sobered by them and as you cling to Him, look upon and even ask His mercy to reflect upon His love for you. That is a love where He has come to us and not just given us the results of the test that diagnoses us, but He's given us the, the, the miracle healing that redeems and gives life to us and even brings our hearts from deadness in sin to alive in Him. Would you look on this Christ and look on His work And look on the fact that though passages like this and like last week and like the weeks to come may convict you and may speak judgment over you, your Christ who speaks them to you gives life and He gives life because He has given His life for you and to atone for your sins. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, you give us hard words. But you give us your tender heart for us. You do not speak this judgment upon us and then walk away. You speak this judgment upon our sin and then walk towards us. And you meet us in mercy. Lord, I pray for any here who perhaps these words of yours have pierced deeply to their heart. They need to walk into the light of confession and repentance. Would you help them to do so? Help them to hear this warning of Christ, to walk into the light, and to know that in Christ they will not be met by condemnation and destruction, but by life and mercy. And it is in Christ that we pray. Amen.